0: Thanks for tuning in to Big Money in the 805. I'm Michael Anderson. Today we have Jonathan Light, author of the Cultural Encyclopedia of Baseball in the studio. We've got a great show for you. As always, we hope to make the next 30 minutes a very good investment of your time. Today's show is brought to you by GEICO Local Office, car and homeowner's insurance for the 805. You could save up to 15% call Greg Mock of GEICO Local Office. 805-487-7847. 805-487-7847.
1: Michael Anderson, Chief Investment Officer at Maranatha Financial. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Maranatha's investments on this program. All opinions expressed by participants on this program are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Maranatha Financial or its affiliates. For more information, visit Maranatha.com.
2: It's time for Big Money in the 805 with your host, Michael Anderson, bringing you a feature interview, a local nonprofit spotlight, and some financial wisdom. Get local and relevant information for the 805. For show notes and more information, go to Maranatha.com. And now, here's your host, Michael
0: Anderson. And we're back with uh, Jonathan Fraser light the Cultural Encyclopedia of Baseball, a beautiful book. This is the second edition, and we're going to be going through some of the stories from the book. You can see we won't get to them all today, but we'll have some good ones. Jonathan Light, he's a partner, Light Gabler Law Firm, and he's also the author of this book, a fabulous book. Pleasure to have you in the studio. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Just call me John. Jonathan, only when my mom was mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Sounds good. Well, Tom Spence and I are, are here. and We're looking forward to this interview. Uh, let's first just start with this book, the The origins of the book. How did this come together? What's the, yeah, tell us about a, this it's book. It's
3: an okay origin story. I always wanted to write a book and fiction seemed too hard. And I'd been reading some baseball books, the first edition back in the 90s actually in the late 80s, and I thought, wouldn't it be cool to maybe put some of this information in the same place? Because people had different versions of the same story. And it was sort of a common theme in baseball that different takes on things, a lot of mythology in baseball, you know, Babe Ruth and his You know, supposedly eating too many hot dogs, total myth, Cooperstown being the home of baseball, total myth. So there's a lot of that. So I thought, I'm going to put it all in one place let, you know, you decide what you think is the correct thing. And it just kept growing and growing and growing. And then the book's six pounds and 1.2 million words, and I had trouble finding a publisher originally. And so I just kept working on it, figuring someday I'd find a publisher. And eventually I did. And I got Sporting News Baseball Book of the Year when it came out and some other awards. And it was fun. But it was all because I wanted to write a book and fiction seemed
0: too hard. Mm, that's fantastic. That's really neat. And, and you know, so you had to go to the Hall of Fame, I take it. So you're there. Um, tell us about going there. And I understand there's something to do with Lou Gehrig's will. That, well, I, you know, I, there's a neat story there.
3: I show up with about 100 topics because the book is an A to Z encyclopedia uh Britannica basically. It's not statistics, but it's, you know, antitrust and agents and alcoholism and drugs and sex and suicide and world wars and all this stuff. And so I come in with a list of things I want to research and they just roll their eyes and go, Well, you're in the Society for American Baseball Research, the Geek Baseball Group. So we're just gonna let you go back <laughs> to the stacks and do whatever you want. So I start pulling open drawers and finding little tidbits of things and I'm writing stuff down. And I came across a box that they they don't even know what they have there. They have so much stuff. And I open it up, and there's some blue-back legal documents, which I recognize, and I see one, and it's Lou Gehrig's original will. Mm. And his wife and his mother were having a battle after he died over his memorabilia, and his will was put into court. So I brought it out, and I said, do you guys know you have this thing? And I held it up. They had no idea. Wow. And that that was a $100,000 memorabilia item, maybe. So anyway, fun stuff like that. The Hall of Fame Research Director ended up writing the forward to my first edition, and we went from there. And I did about four or five visits. Great little town. They literally have one stoplight in Cooperstown. And years ago, the one of the council members, they were debating whether to put a minor league team in Cooperstown. And at a city council meeting, he actually said, well, we're not really a baseball town per se. <laughs> Seriously?
0: Go figure. Go figure. Yeah.
1: And, John, one of the things about baseball that's great is the traditions, like throwing out the first pitch and the Star-Spangled Banner, National Anthem. The seventh-inning stretch is funny, though. Why Why it's seven innings of stretch, and we sing, take me out to the ball game?
3: Well, the, the seventh-inning stretch, there's a lot of myth around that. Supposedly, in the 1870s, a Brother Jasper at some Manhattan college baseball game got up, and they had a little blurb in the paper about everybody got up and stretched in the seventh inning. There's a story that one of the presidents, US presidents in the teens stood up in the seventh inning and it just sort of evolved from there. Uh, Take me out to the ball game, that actually, I held the original lyric of that in my hands. A guy named Jack Norworth wrote that in 1908, most popular song that year. And he was criticized for writing a song about baseball when he'd never been to a baseball game. And he said, well, look, my buddy wrote, Take, uh, don't sit under the apple tree with anyone else but me. And he'd never sat and, under an apple tree before. <laughs> so he didn't think it was such a big deal. And people forget that it's a, it's about a girl named Katie Casey who loved baseball. Her boyfriend comes to take her to a show and she says, no, I'll tell you what you can do instead. Let's Take me out to the ball game. And that's the origin of the, of the lyric because people don't really know the backstory. So that's take me out to the ball game. And then the Star Spangled Banner, if you think about it, it was only played on opening day or, or big events First game of the World Series because there's no sound system and unless you have a live orchestra or a live band You're not gonna have the Star Spangled Banner being played. So it, it got played at the beginning during um, World War one as a patriotic thing during one of the World Series games mm. and then occasionally it would get played in the 20s and 30s Opening day all-star game World Series have a band and then by the late 30s when we had a public address system during World War two We've got now the patriotism of we're going to support the United States in the war. And that's when we started doing it every day. And they could blast it through the public address system. And from then on, it became the tradition that you would do it every day. And so that's where we got those traditions.
1: And the thing that's great about it is me and the guy next to me can't sing, but the 50,000 together sound pretty good.
0: <laughs> exactly. And I've, I've always Isn't loved that, that the about truth? the National Anthem. Safety yeah, in I numbers. I can't
1: sing, but boy, did we
0: sound great together. <laughs> Understood completely. <laughs> hey, so the book comes out. You finish it. Now we're on the second edition. But tell me about the Bob Costas. What did he have to say when it came well, out? It
3: was kind of fun. I, he got a copy of the book somehow, and he called me. But I don't know this. My secretary at the time, Gail, who's still around, and she didn't own a television. And she didn't know who Bob Costas was. And I have a series of buddies from baseball and fantasy league that would call me. I'm the commissioner of the Beer Drinking Association of Major League Baseball. And they'd call occasionally and they'd leave messages that that Willie Mays was on the phone or Babe Ruth. And she kind of got those. So this Bob Costas from NBC calls one day and I'm on the phone. She brings me a phone slip and says... He says he's some guy named Bob Costas from NBC, but I think it's one of your baseball buddies yanking my chain. So I called him back, and he was very gracious about the book. And it was just a fun experience, and I, I got to talk to him. I love that. Wow, that's
1: awesome. <laughs> what about the ban on radio broadcasts until after World War II? I know quite a bit about baseball, but, but not this. Well, this was know?
3: kind of interesting. We had baseball broadcasts starting in the 1920s, and some teams would embrace it, like the Cubs— they were broadcasting every game and the White Sox in Chicago on radio and the thing the, the thinking was that the more we get it out there publicity you'll have more people coming to the game where they can sell tickets and sell concessions they didn't have TV revenue at the time but in New York they had an odd thing remember they had the Giants and they had the Met, uh, the Giants and the Yankees and the Dodgers and they had an unspoken rule that the three teams would not broadcast their home games And for whatever reason, they thought that it would take away from attendance, that if they could listen to it on the radio, they wouldn't come to the game. Does that sound familiar? Boy, did they have that wrong. Right. (laughs) And so for many years, until around World War II when the ban was lifted, it was up to that time, they just didn't broadcast their games, which was sort of silly. Mm. And so they finally realized that this is going to draw fans, and if I'm listening to it at home, it may make me want to go to a game and get wet my appetite. So that's how it changed. But for a long time in New York,
0: no radio games broadcast at home. And how did they use the radio? Uh, you, you write about this a little bit, this Cub strategy with, with broadcasting everything. Well, their theory was,
3: again, if we have publicity, even the away games were broadcast, but to save money, they did an interesting thing. They would do what were called recreations. This was kind of crazy. So a guy would sit in a, in a booth like we're in right now, and he would have a Western Union ticker tape broadcasting the game on ticker tape, but he'd be <laughs> at home in Chicago, and he would watch the ticker tape and see that it was a foul ball or it was a uh, hit. And they'd have a little, like a, a cowbell, and they'd hit the cowbell for when there was a, or, some, or a crack of a bat thing. And then if, if the ticker died for some reason, they'd say that it was a rain delay. They'd make up stuff. And they would have a crowd noise looped in the background that you would hear in the background. And if you listen closely, about every 15 minutes, it was the same person, you know, yelling something out to the player. So they did these recreations until the late 50s and in one team early 60s where somebody be at home and, and save money on the broadcaster going on the road with the team. <laughs> Great strategy. Wasn't
1: Ronald Reagan part of I know he, he broadcast. He
3: did a little broadcasting in Iowa and I forget all the details, but he was a either minor league baseball or, and a little football. I think he did back uh, in his early days. Yes.
1: So TV, late 30s or so, when, when did baseball start adapting?
3: 1938 was the first broadcast game, and you know, we had night games in 35, and then we finally started having television in 38, but, but television didn't take off, we had TV, But until after World War II, television got sidetracked because they were all ready to launch early in the 40s and then World War II hits in 1941 and everything is now diverted towards the war effort. And so baseball broadcasting and all television basically was put off until after World War II. But we did have a game broadcast and I think it was in Cincinnati, but an interesting story. Uh, A good friend of my dad's during the war, they put on the the radio stations uh, after D-Day in France and Germany and this guy, was named Lloyd Sigmund, and Lloyd Sigmund eventually invented the SIG alert. Mm -hmm. And I have a picture of him in my book with Gene Autry, who was the first purchaser of the California Angels. And he says he thinks he was the first guy ever to broadcast a baseball game, because they would sell these little cardboard box or shoebox size uh, kits that you could make your own crystal television set. And they were on the sixth story in Boston, and one day they turned their one little camera on the Red Sox game, the ball was a pinprick and they broadcast out to the six or seven hundred people that had their little boxed TV set that they built. First TV broadcast in the mid-30s before the official first broadcast.
0: Oh, how neat. That's really cool. And then TV for night games, that that came along later. That was really a
3: phenomenon where we, well, we didn't have a lot of night games. There wasn't a World Series night game until around 1971. There's the famous picture of Bowie Kuhn not wearing a uh, an overcoat during a freezing game. Apparently he wore long underwear and didn't tell anybody. <laughs> but they were trying to promote this concept of night baseball, which didn't happen. I mean, you probably remember in... In elementary school in the 60s, we were watching the TV in the cafeteria because the games on at noon or one o'clock. And then they finally started to do night games, all driven by TV revenue. But night games, until the 60s, you really didn't have very many night games. And I remember watching Giants-Dodgers at night, Candlestick Park, because they would only broadcast away games. And uh, it was freezing, bad stuff. So not until the 60s that we really have a lot of night games.
1: I want to throw a curveball since we are talking baseball. I understand that the Cubs weren't really so married to day games, and this could be some great baseball mythology, that they had all the steel to put the lights up, and they donated it towards the war effort.
3: That's Have a, you heard That's this? a true statement, and I think somewhere in my book that's referenced. They were ready that's to do it. That's probably where I learned it. Maybe. But that is true. They had the steel, and they ended up delaying it, and then it became kind of a custom that, oh, we're only a day game. Place and but the TV ratings were too big. And they had to go to night games, and if they wanted to be in the postseason, which took them a while, uh, they were never going to be uh, uh, going to be able to do it because they didn't have night games. So they had to get it going, and there was some resistance at the time. But now it's it's a non-issue.
1: But it was remarkable how long they held to oh, the day games.
3: Probably another 15, 20 years before, as the last team as the holdout, and that's a long time. When you think about today, night games are just a staple because that's where the revenue is. Mm-hmm. It's all TV driven big money.
0: Let's uh, finish with a few more questions and, and tell us a, a few of your favorite stories from the book. I know there's one uh, that you like to share about Roger Maris. It's a fun
3: story. There was a there was a publicist for the San Diego Padres who told me this story. And I'm blanking on his name right now, but he he grew up in, in New York and his favorite player was Roger Maris. And people forget how great Maris was. He was with Mantle. But in 1960, he was the MVP. And in 1961, he was the MVP, and there were very few players that were back-to-back MVPs. So this guy is his great, is his 10-year-old, and he becomes friends with Maris on the sidelines, and before games, Maris would throw him a ball or a broken bat, and one, he'd throw him a jersey or an old glove, and they got to be kind of buddies with this young boy and Roger Maris. And we'll call him Sam because I'm blanking on his name right now. And Sam then goes off to college at Northwestern in Chicago, and Maris that season got traded to the Cardinals and so to start the season and he's telling all his buddies what a great relationship he has with me with uh, Maris and they don't believe him and they're gonna go to the opening day and they go down to the sideline and he waves at Maris and they're all kind of skeptical and Maris comes over and says Sam my greatest fan and all the guys are dazzled and impressed that he knows him they go out to the right field bleachers to watch the game and Maris hits a home run his first game in the National League and this guy caught the ball wow that's a story. I yeah, love that
1: one. that's pretty remarkable. Yeah,
0: yeah. just wow. crazy. You couldn't even imagine. Some things just you can't you couldn't even write that up. That's just no, you really can't. And then
3: <laughs> a couple of my favorite quotes. There's a guy named Ken Hubbard is a humorist. And he said, knowing everything there is to know about baseball is about as profitable as being a good whittler. It's <laughs> probably about right. I think I've made about a dollar ninety eight per hour that I worked on this thing because it was 15 to 20 hours a week for seven years on the first edition and then another three years later. And then I'll give you my, my last quote, which I don't tell to the third graders when I do my baseball show for them because I do slides and things. And Joe DiMaggio and Marilyn Monroe are married for nine months in January of 54 to October of 54. And then they get divorced. And there was an old pianist named Oscar Levant, kind of an old raconteur kind of guy from the 50s. And he said that Marilyn Monroe divorcing Joe DiMaggio just goes to show you that no man can be an expert at two national pastimes. <laughs> nice, very, very good.
1: Who's your favorite player of all time?
3: Well, my favorite from, of the stars is Ted Williams, but my favorite guy that I saw was Bill Buckner. And I always felt bad that he got the rap with the Red Sox, cause, or the Mets game, because yeah, he, the ball went through his legs, but uh, what a great career.
1: Have you ever seen the Curb Your Enthusiasm episode? I have not. You must. I'll you have to find it must. on YouTube. And I, I love Bill it. Buckner. Mine's Willie Mays, and I'm a Dodger fan. Who's you. yours? Mine's Mike Sosha. Growing up, oh, loved rooting for him,
0: playing uh, catcher for the Dodgers. No? It's a great Always book, a folks.
1: I, I've still got it on the coffee table. I think you gave it to me. Is it possible? Nineteen ninety-eight would have been the
3: first That's edition when we did those long interviews long
0: time ago, yeah. and well, it is wonderful. The begging question is: there going to be a third edition? Is that you know, I know people got to ask you? that There a is lot. not
3: because okay. the second edition has been out a few years now, and it just about killed me. And it, with the internet, it's kind of changed the dynamic now. You want to, you, you, you think of something, you go on the internet and probably find it. Whereas before, my book was kind of unique because it pulled all these things together. And I collected about 1,000 baseball books in the process and would find great little quotes from places you would never expect and books you'd never expect. And so the odds of a third edition are probably nil at this point. I'm focused on other things. But it was a great experience, and I still get mileage. I still speak on it. You know, this kind of stuff is great. I love it.
0: Our feature interview today has been Jonathan Light, John Light, and he is the author of The Cultural Encyclopedia of Baseball. It's a big book, it's a great book. You can find it online, you can go on Amazon, Google, go ahead and just put in The Cultural Encyclopedia of Baseball, and we will also have a copy in our show notes. John, thanks for being on the program today.
3: You're welcome. One last thing, there's a Jonathan Light on the internet who wrote The Art of Porn, that's not
0: me. (laughs) Thank you for clarifying. Check the book out. Now
2: it's time for the Nonprofit Spotlight with your host, Michael Anderson on Big Money in the 805.
0: Nonprofit Spotlight. Each week we highlight a local nonprofit doing good work for our community. Today's Nonprofit Spotlight is brought to you by Era Energy, powered by safety, innovation, and community. We help keep California moving forward. And today we have Spencer Garrett in the studio. He's the owner of the Pierpont Racquet Club, and he's been very involved with the Boys and Girls Club of Ventura over the years. Spencer, thank you for being here today. Oh, thank you, Mike. Pleasure to be here. Let's start with an overview of the Boys and Girls Club of Ventura and tell us as well why that's uh, important to you and special. Well, I got involved with
4: the Ventura Girls Club in the late 1970s and then actually in the early 80s we merged with the Boys Club. So ever since then, it's been the Ventura Boys and Girls Club. Right now, there's four club sites that we operate, and uh, we serve kids that uh, otherwise you're not sure where they'd be. You know, we talk about those as latchkey kids. I think it's a program that's that's critical to our community, and it's something that actually. Got its initial start with the uh, Police League, I believe, and everything, so we serve, I can't tell you the number, but hundreds of kids each day, and uh, the cost is, is minimal. In fact, kid can't afford it. They can still be a member of the club. Great programs.
0: That's great. My younger brother and younger sister were very active in the club over in Olive, uh, over in the Avenue. At a point where they were, uh, you know, very impressionable, very young, and it was a wonderful place. My brother loved it, and my sister, um, she enjoyed it just a little bit less, but she enjoyed it as well. <laughs> he just played video games all the time and loved it. And got to play sports, and the people were very helpful for him. and And we didn't have money to pay for it, but somehow he got to keep going, and it was it was a good thing. So I always loved the boys and girls. Club. We have the golf tournament coming up, and this is a big fundraiser. When you think about the Boys and Girls Club, they don't get enough money every year to fund themselves, so we need to do fundraisers, and this is one of their big ones. The golf tournament's on May 18th. It's at Ojai Valley Inn and Spa. Spencer, let me have you sell that to our listeners. Why should people play? Tell us about the golf tournament. Well, first of all, the money that you spend at the golf tournament goes to support the
4: Boys and Girls Club. I mean, that is reason enough. But uh actually what we did this year we dropped the price a hundred dollars and uh, changed the venue from Satakoy Country Club where it's been the last few years to the Ohio Valley Inn and Spa because we wanted to move it into a time that didn't conflict with another major fundraiser, which is the Great Auction. So this year it's on, as you said, Friday, May 18th. We're doing a 9 o'clock shotgun start with either a four-person scramble or a four-person shamble. Contests and games out on the field. I guarantee it'll be wonderful weather. If not, blame Mike. Uh, (laughs) But it's just a fun day, and it does definitely
0: benefit the Boys and Girls Club. And that includes some awards and the barbecue lunch and some I and the drinks. I don't know about the awards. I never and, win any. <laughs> well, it is fun. I've played it in the last few years and and been involved, and in it. it really is a great event. But but it does go to that cause that's so important to uh, to Ventura, and and it's a great cause. The other thing I wanted to mention is there's this special thing the the, the Lexus Drive for Charity. They sp- selected Ventura Boys and Girls Club to receive this uh, this charity event. It's an all expense paid trip to Pebble Beach, three golf courses, food, drink, all that stuff. So you can also win that at the golf tournament. Tell us about that Lexus Drive for Charity. I
4: will tell you that first of all, the courses that you play Pebble Beach and at Spanish Bay and Spyglass are classic courses. The uh, event is December 5th through 8th. I've actually been to that event uh, three times. In fact, I love it so much that what we're doing now is it used to be on an auction and I could buy it because I could outbid people. Unfortunately, (laughs) they change it to a raffle. So now it's all luck. And despite the fact that I usually try to buy 10 or 20 of the 200 tickets, (laughs) I haven't had my name drawn. But one of the things we do offer is if you win and it's you and a friend go up there, it doesn't include the hotel. But other than that, it's everything. And I tell you, they treat you like royalty. Mm. The tickets are $100. There's a maximum of 200 are sold. And if you happen to win and you're not a golfer, you've still, by paying that $100 or supporting the Boys and Girls Club, and I'll buy the winning ticket for $5,000 because I want to go again. It is, it's fantastic.
0: <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, you can sign up. You can also learn more about the Boys and Girls Club and consider participating in the golf tournament. You go online to bgclub.com. Ventura.org. that's bgclubventura.org you can click on special events for more information for the golf tournament or get yourself a lexus drive for charity ticket spencer thank you so much for being on the program thank you today. mike What's in the news? This segment is brought to you by Spanish Hills Country Club. Taste the Elegance. Golf, athletic, and social memberships. Visit SpanishHillsCC.com or call Cindy 805-388-5000. We have Tim Gallagher, former editor of the Ventura County Star, as our news correspondent. Tim, thanks for being on the program today. What's in the news?
2: Well, Mike, the big news in the county this week is what the owners of the Simi Valley Town Center Mall are planning to do out there with the center. Now, this is a place that opened about a decade ago, but it struggled from day one. In fact, it's the only mall in the country where an Apple store has opened and then closed for lack of business. So that ought to tell you something. But in truth, shopping malls are kind of becoming like trolley cars or a throwback to an earlier day. But the owners have announced plans this week that uh, would reduce the amount of retail space in the center. They knocked down one of the two big Macy's buildings they built originally, and they would replace that with what's called a mixed-use project. In this case, 332 apartments or condos or townhomes there. And they'd also put in a park. And the idea here is that if you can't get people to come to your mall regularly, then put some apartments or townhomes near your mall and they'll live right there and hopefully uh, increase the shopping that goes on in the area. If you've ever been down to the, uh, the Americana down in the Glendale, that area, Um, you'll know what this looks like.
0: Mm, Interesting. Well, you know, I wonder if that's going to be the new normal nowadays as retail changes and that landscape continues to evolve.
2: There's a plan in uh, Thousand Oaks kind of early stages about doing something similar over at the Oaks Mall. Don't know what the future holds for Pacific View Mall in Ventura, but it's certainly not blowing the doors open anywhere. It's just people have gone to online shopping and stores that are making it these days are either really in the low price mode or high service mode and everybody else in the middle is, is losing out to Amazon and the and like,
0: and Tim, what else do you have for us today?
2: Well, next week, Mike, I think we'll be talking about a big vote coming up the thousand Oaks council on Tuesday night, uh, where they're going to consider whether to put a thousand and eighty homes back into what they call their measure e-bank thousand Oaks was just about done. They only had about 400 homes left uh, that could be permitted under their previous regulations, but they've, they've looked at changing the way they counted things in the past. And they're looking at adding almost 1100 units and, uh, I think it's going to be quite a battle royal out there at the council meeting Tuesday night.
0: Well, it's going to be interesting, and uh, that's our news correspondent, Tim Gallagher. You can learn more about Tim online at the2020network.com. Tim, thanks so much.
2: Thanks again, Mike.
0: And that does it for this week's episode of Big Money in the 805. We'd like to thank you for joining us, and we'd also like to thank the team at Boyd & Associates providing home security to Southern California and also the GEICO local office in Oxnard with Greg Mock. If you have questions about the show or questions about your financial matters, you can contact me directly at maranantha.com. That's M-A-R-A-N-A-N-T-H-A.com. Or give me a call, 805-665-3767 thanks for listening and have a good week hi this is michael anderson certified financial planner i've dedicated the past 12 years to researching different investment ideas there are no guarantees when investing but with a little help you can find the right approach i have built allocationlink.com specifically for you allocationlink.com is investment management made simple smart and low cost AllocationLink.com can have your account set up in less than 10 minutes. Please visit AllocationLink.com to learn more, or you can leave me a message at 805-665-3767. Do you ever question if your investments
1: are right for you? Do you own any annuities, retirement accounts, or have other money you want help with? Have you ever wondered what your advisor is making or how they get paid? Get a free second opinion. Talk with Michael Anderson, Certified Financial Planner. Call his answering service today. 805-665-3767. Leave a message and get a call back immediately. 805-665-3767.
0: And now it's time for Inside the 805.
3: Listen to learn more about what's happening in Ventura and Santa Barbara counties and
2: hometowns